I'm going to ask you now to turn with me to the Word of God. To 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and our text this morning will be verses 9 through 11. Would you stand with me now to respect to the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God? For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining through our salvation, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. There is, in the conclusion of that great document produced by the Synod of Dord in 1618, which was an international body of Reformed churches gathering together to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ against attack. And the attack came from those who were called the remonstrants. That means people who were protesting the gospel of Jesus Christ that was formulated and understood by the reform. And in the conclusion of that document, they address the charges of the remonstrants or the Arminians against the reformed doctrine of predestination. And here is uh, among the things that the Arminians were saying by way of bringing charge against Christ and the gospel and the biblical teaching about salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ, they said that um, it leads the minds of men from all piety and religion, and that it is an opiate administered by the flesh and the devil. This was the charge of the Arminians against the idea that God sovereignly predestined certain individuals to salvation in Jesus Christ. The charge is that it leads men away from piety and religion and that it is an opiate of the devil. And the synod, as uh, you may well understand, didn't take kindly to such language and spoke of it with the strongest of terms saying, we detest this with our whole soul. We detest this with our whole soul. And the reason was because it wasn't taken as offense against them. The reason is because it was taken as offense against Christ and the inspired word of God. But you see, this was one of the charges that was brought up against the Reformed doctrine of predestination, which is not the Reformed doctrine, it is the biblical doctrine, because it is found in the word of God. But you see, the Romanists and the Arminians at the time of the Reformation did not fail to bring charge against this gospel of the sovereignty of God in electing certain individuals to grace and salvation in Jesus Christ. They said, if you teach people the certainty of their salvation in Christ, they'll live like hell. And they won't fall short of it either. 
And the reformed responded with force against that. Again, I repeat the words of the Synod of Dort. We detest this with our whole soul. Because the Reformed argued from the word of God that the doctrine of election and predestination, instead of leading people into gross impiety and immorality, they said it was just the opposite, that it led to the most robust humility before God, the deepest of adoration of his mercies, the most profound motivation to cleanse from sin, and to return unto God the most ardent form of love out of gratitude for his mercies. You see, they said instead of leading people to hell, what it did was lifted up hearts in adoration to God out of thankfulness for the sovereignty of God and the outpouring of his saving mercy. They didn't just argue that, though, from psychology. In other words, they didn't merely say, well, because God has been nice to us, we'll be nice to him. Well, that wasn't the basis of their argument. The basis of their argument was, was founded on the word of God. That God himself in scripture says that the fountain and the foundation of Christian motive is the knowledge of the sovereign electing hand of God in Christ. And one of those passages they could go to is the one which is before us this morning. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, and I invite you to fix your eyes on the very first word of verse 9, for. Oh, we love words like for, and therefore, and because, and so that, because they signal to us an argument is being made. And the argument that is being made is that whatever follows in verse 9 forms the foundation of the duty which has just been set forth in verse 8. And what has just been set forth in verse 8? But the call to live like Christians. As the apostle said, since we are of the day, let us be sober. This is the call of the Christian life. And in a terse, compact statement, the apostle is calling the Christian to live like a believer. And I want you to notice the great and grand motivation and foundation for that is signaled by four and unfolded in what follows in verse 9. For God has not destined us to wrath, but to salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. That's the doctrine of election. You see that it's not psychology. It's theology. Because God has appointed us and destined us and chosen us and predestined us to salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ and his accomplishment of redemption on the cross, we as believers must, must live like Christians. And so the main point of our text is that sovereign divine election to grace and salvation leads to Christian obedience, not carnal security. And so our message this morning is about double predestination. The teaching of double predestination 
leads not to lawlessness, but to Christian duty. We'll expound this in two parts. We're going to take on the doctrine. So we'll call it our first point, the exposition of the doctrine. And second of all, the implications of the doctrine. So let's begin with the exposition of the doctrine. What I want to expound to you is the doctrine of double predestination because we have one of those rare texts in the New Testament which incorporates both aspects of this divine decree which we call double predestination. And again, this is the motive that the Apostle Paul presents for living the Christian life. So we're going to take some time to, to understand it and expound it very carefully and accurately. But, but one of the things I would say before I dive into the exposition of the doctrine of double predestination is say this, and I know you're aware of this because you're all our students of the catechism. Uh, there's just one decree of God. There's just one decree of God. And scripture is full of testimony uh, that God has decreed all things in heaven and earth. And that includes absolutely every single thing that will ever come to pass. The Bible teaches us that the decree of God concerns the good actions of men, the sinful actions of men, the, conden- the contingent events of life, the means as well unto the end. There's all kinds of things. Every single thing is covered under the scope of the decree of God. I remember one of the first times that ever sunk into my life. I asked a stupid question in the midst of a Bible study, but I meant it sincerely because I hadn't quite wrapped my mind around this yet. I said, does God even control dripping faucets? It seemed kind of silly. Why would God be concerned about something so small? Well, my teacher was uh, quite generous and kind to me And affirmed that and pointed out that everything fits under the will and the command and the decree of God. So it's not just salvation that has been decreed, it's everything that has been decreed. And that decree is one, it is internal, it is effectual, it is immutable and unchanging. And we have to hold that because the Bible teaches that. So we keep that in our thinking, but as we zero in him on, and sharpen our focus on our text, we see that an element or a component of that decree of God, which pertains to all things now, uh, has a focus within it upon us, upon men. And that's where we've come into the doctrine of predestination, because this decree concerns the appointment of some men unto salvation, Lord Jesus Christ, and this decree contains within it what Calvin called the horrible decree, the decree that some men are destined to wrath. And that's what some might think is the dark side of the decree of God. But the Bible teaches it, so we don't shrink back from it. This morning we have it in our text. And the very first thing I want you to take notice of in our passage, is this aspect of predestination, which we call ordination to wrath. Look at verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for the obtaining of salvation. And of course, the whole idea of predestination comes in this verb, which you have in your text, destined. It literally means to appoint or 
to establish. And, and God is obviously the author. He is the subject of the verb here. It's not an impersonal sort of fate that's out there controlling things, some invisible hand behind all events. No, it is the sovereign, personal, eternal God. And he made a willful determination to do something destined. And it's very clear that within this destination, there are two categories because he says uh, here, he's not destined us for wrath. You see that? Which would indicate that there are some within the decree who are not destined for salvation. So we have two categories. We have us and we have the rest. And so it implies that some have been appointed to salvation and some have been appointed to wrath. And, and the, the clause here is parallel. There are two different destinations. You can see that from the preposition for. God has destined us, not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. So there's two things going on. There's two components of this destination. A decree unto wrath and a decree unto Salvation. It should be obvious to us from the form of our text that there is a destination unto salvation and there is a destination unto wrath. So what's this destination unto wrath? And the answer, it is a destination unto the punishment of God. It is a destination unto the punishment of God. Listen to some of these scripture texts. Romans 2.5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. Colossians 3.5 Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed which is idolatry, for because of these things the wrath of God will come upon the disobedient. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not obey the gospel these will pay the penalty of, of eternal destruction when he comes to be glorified in his saints. Now, what ties together all these passages, and there are others, is this. That the scriptures testify that in the last day when, when Christ returns, there will be a judgment. And that judgment will be for sin. And God will pour out his punishment in the form of wrath upon those who have sinned and who have never run to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's precisely what Paul speaks of here. There is a destination unto wrath for sin. Now, uh, because this is a doctrine that we should handle with discretion and prudence and, and carefulness, because it is a horrible decree, even as Calvin it speaks of it because of what it says, is that, is that God has done this. We have to be very careful with how we speak of it. And uh, so theologians have been very careful with their formulations and with their words. I'll just quote to you from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, paragraph 7. Here's a good summary of it. It says, The rest of mankind God was pleased, according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, to pass by some and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin. So there's two parts of this decree of predestination. To pass by some and to ordain them 
to wrath for their sin. In other words, there's two sovereign determinations made here. And the very first one is to pass over or to pass by. And what this simply means is that God, for reasons known only to himself, which are not included within the word of God, has determined that for a certain number of individuals, he would not intervene with grace. So how do you know that? And the answer is because the Bible told me so. Romans chapter 9, verse 21, Does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? We're speaking here of the divine determination, and the Apostle Paul refers to a common sense metaphor, one that everybody would agree with. He says, when the potter is at the potter's wheel, is not controlled by the piece of clay in front of him. The piece of clay does not cry out and make their decision known to the potter about what shape they will take. The common sense idea built into the metaphor is this, that the potter is the one who determines the shape of the clay. And as Paul drops that, he goes into verse 22, he makes it abundantly clear that the potter, who is the Lord, has destined some of those pots of clay to wrath. Why did he do it? We don't know. Did he do it? The Bible tells me so. He sovereignly passed on by. He made the determination to not intervene in the life of the sinner to administer them grace. But the second side of the decree of predestination is very important here. We think about it as it pertains to the decree to wrath because the qualification is simply this, that God ordained some to wrath because of their sin. In other words, it is a judicial act. In other words, because God takes into consideration that because they have sinned, because they have fallen short of his glory, because they have rejected his Christ, because they have refused his gospel, that because of their sin, he would ordain them to wrath. Now, Paul speaks in a compact fashion here in verse 9. In 1 Thessalonians, we said, he's not destined us to wrath. But we begin to pull in the testimony of Scripture, the broad scope of biblical revelation. What we can do is fill this in now. We can understand that there was a passing by, and then because God did not intervene to administer grace, and people were left to their own imaginations, devices, and desires, they led a life of rebellion. Because of their sins, they are ordained to punishment. Now, I want to show you one concrete passage so it doesn't feel as abstract. So turn with me now to 1 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> 1 Peter chapter 2. I think that this passage uh, is uh, one of those clear passages you can turn to and you can see sort of the mechanics of this being worked out. And, and as you're turning there and hopefully you've arrived at this verse, I think one of the things that you will notice here is there's an and at the outset of verse 8. And that and suggests to us that 
Peter's thought here in verse 8 is simply a continuation of um, what he's been saying. So if you look at verse 8, you can see the apostle has referred to those who disbelieve. See that? In verse 7, he says, uh, there are those who disbelieve. On the front side, he says, this precious value then is for you who believe. That is, when they lay hold of Christ, he doesn't disappoint. They are saved utterly. But there are those who disbelieve, who don't believe. And he goes on to speak, saying, The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. You see, he's uh, citing from Isaiah chapter 8, which is a prophecy about Jesus Christ, who's referred to under the image of a stone. And, um, you know, here, the apostle Peter refers to Christ as the stone. He says, um, those whom that stone was sent to, well, the builders rejected. Who is that? The Jews of Christ's day predominantly rejected Christ. So now, as he comes into verse 8, he expounds on those rejectors, those disbelievers, if you will. And here's what he says, And the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, that's what Christ has now become to them, for they stumble because they were disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were appointed. Now I want you to think about what the Apostle Paul first says about those who disbelieve. He says they have stumbled. They have stumbled. Uh, it's as if they were uh, walking down a, a dark hall in the middle of the night and they stubbed their toe over one of their children's toes, toys and they, they, uh, they fell head over heels. They stumbled. They face planted right into the floor. They stumbled. Well, that's a narrative description, but why? Now you have the cause. They stumble because. Because they were disobedient to the word. Now that word, word is precious to us. Because if you go back to chapter 1, you will notice that Peter uses that word in verse 23 when he says, You've not been born again, for you've been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and the enduring word of God. You see, he's explaining how it is that they have received this place and grace. How is it that they have become born again? Why is it that they are a new creation and they are new creatures in Jesus Christ? And the answer is... They have been sovereignly born from above. And that sovereign birth comes from a seed. And that seed is described here as the living and enduring word of God. Now that's precisely the term that is referred to back in verse 23 as the word of God. Is now referred to here. In 1 Peter 2, verse 8, they stumbled because they were disobedient to the word. You see? What is it they were disobedient to? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Think of it. They stumbled because they were disobedient to the word. And what's that word? What is that gospel? Is it some offensive message? Well, I guess, yes, in part it is, because this message of the gospel says, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. In a sense, it is offensive. In a sense, it says you're not enough. In a sense, it says you're bad. 
In a sense, it says you're a sinner. In a sense, it says you have no hope. In a sense, it says you're without God. In a sense, it says you're of the darkness. But then it follows it up as saying this. That all of you who are weary and sin broken, come unto me and I'll give you rest. You see, it gives a handout. It says, you who will come, you can have life. It says, whosoever shall believe on him will have all of those nasty sins washed away. It says all those failures and your attempts at piety and religiosity and holiness and uprightness all of your pharisaical ways, all of your smugness, all of your pride, all of your arrogance, well, Jesus Christ will wash it away with his precious blood. You will have total and complete pardon. Just come. It's that offensive word here that Peter says, they disobey. I'm just trying to make the case here because I think it's very helpful. I know people who hate this doctrine. It is an offensive doctrine to even Christians. They are offended by the idea that God ordains some to wrath. But the text is very clear. Who is it who's being ordained? Those who hate the gospel. Because they're disobedient. That's exactly what's being said here. You say, what in the world does this have to do with the doctrine of predestination, Pastor Sato? Well, read the rest of the verse. And to this they were appointed. There's no doom. I don't know why the New American Standard puts doom in there. What a ridiculous editorial remark. It's humanism. To this they were appointed. I want you to notice here the word appointed is the very same verb of 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, which is translated there, destined. It refers to the sovereign determination of God. And here it says, to this, to what? To disobedience. They were appointed. Now, this is where we fall back on uh, our distinctions, right? Because this is where you go very badly. There are some who are more Calvinistic than the Bible. And we reject that, by the way. There are some who say that divine predestination means that God forces a person to reject the gospel against them, their own will. That God works unbelief in their heart. That's not true. You know why we insist upon that not being true? It's because God doesn't need to arm wrestle an unbeliever who's a fallen sinner into unbelief. That's what they already are. They're already unbelievers. There's no need to add to it. Remember the word of God says, the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. God doesn't need to add to that. That is the willfulness and the arrogance and the pride that comes from the fall. And so we don't say here 
that God has to positively, sovereignly work unbelief in the heart of men? No. It's already there. And this is where we fall back on our distinction. We said that the doctrine of predestination, when it comes to ordination and wrath, has two parts. The passing by and then the ordaining to wrath for sin. In the very fact that God passes by some, which means he determines not to intervene in grace and to bestow saving grace upon a person, that means he renders it certain at that point. They won't believe because he's leaving it to their own devices. That's what they willfully choose. Their unbelief, their rejection, their disobedience of the word that leads to the appointment to wrath for their sin. That's the doctrine of reprobation, of passing by and ordaining to wrath. The passing by is a passing by men with the operation of grace. And because of that, or not because of that, but since that's the case, God leaves men to their devices and they sin and he punishes them in wrath. Well, that's the ordination to wrath. I admit this morning it feels a bit unsavory to our ears, but the Bible teaches that I don't have a choice to whether I believe it or not. If God says it, so I have to believe it. But now here's your ordination to salvation. We come back to our text to 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. We see the positive side of it here. For God has not destined us to wrath, but to what? But to salvation... Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so the very same word destination that we've already seen, which is about God's sovereign individual determination, impacts upon us. Now, believers, it says something about us that God has appointed us to what? To salvation. This is election to grace. It's the same thought that you have in Ephesians 1, 4, where it says that God, before the foundation of the world, chose us in Christ. That's the same thing that's being said here. It's the same thing that he says in Romans chapter, uh, chapter 9, where he says, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. So it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God. Which means that the salvation is something that is appointed sovereignly by God. And it means that God has appointed us to individuals to salvation. And that great salvation is described here as through the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. And I think it's so important to seize on that because, you know, here in speaking about these deep and ultimate and somewhat mysterious truths, what does the apostle do? But brings it right in to a Christ focus. It's not in the abstract. It's personal. It's fixated upon Jesus who died for us. And when we hear that language, it's gospel music to our ears because the New Testament is so full of this language of Christ's death because it is the foundation of our salvation that the incarnate Son of God was strung up on a cross and died there bearing our sin 
in order that he might deliver us from the wrath of God. So just listen to these statements from the New Testament about this Christ-centeredness of our salvation. Christ died for us, 1 Corinthians 15.3. Christ is the substitute and the vicarious atonement for sin, Isaiah 53. Christ was made sin on our behalf, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Christ gave himself that he might deliver us from this present evil age, Galatians 1.4. Christ was delivered for the believer's transgressions in Romans 4.25. Christ gave himself as a ransom for many, Matthew 20.28. Christ delivered himself for us all, Galatians 2.20. Christ appeared in order to take away sin on behalf of the believer, 1 John 3.5. Christ suffered for believers, 1 Peter 2.21. So I, I want to see that in the midst of thinking about these things which feel so abstract and and really terrifying and ultimate, this whole idea of the divine decree, the apostle does something. He says, that death was sovereignly and divinely appointed so that we would have salvation. If we find ourselves in Christ, we have nothing to fear. This is what divine election unto salvation is about. It's not about what we did. It's about a great decision that God made for us. And that determination then becomes the fountain of every single saving grace. Here's how the canons put it in chapter 1, paragraph 9. It says, election is the fountain of every saving good from which proceed faith, holiness, and the other gifts of salvation. And finally, eternal life itself as its fruits and its effects. It's positive. It's sovereign. God determines to intervene in the life of the believer through Christ and his death on the cross and to bestow upon you every single saving grace which is in Christ. It's this massive doctrine of double predestination that Paul pulls out. And we've said that he's done that for an ethical reason to motivate Christian living. And so we need to understand just exactly it is what he's saying. He speaks of election here, which is the eternal act of God by, whereby his sovereign good pleasure, he chooses certain men unto salvation in Jesus Christ apart from anything foreseen in them. And then we have reprobation, which is the eternal decree of God, whereby he determines to pass by some men with the operations of his grace and to punish them for their sin. That's what's going on here in our text when we evaluate it in view of the whole of the word of God. And before I move on to speak about how this connects to the Christian life, I, I want us to just pause for a moment and think about what this means for our application, at least in, just in part. And there's there's a, a number of things that we could say. I actually do like the way the canon spoke of it. It, it, it says that it... It, it, it leads to the deepest humiliation before God. But it also speaks of these other things uh, for this, um, this tremendous adoration of the depths of divine mercies. Lord, why was it me? The deepest and most ardent love for God out of gratitude. 
the most energetic and willful commitment to seeking to live a godly life because of God's sovereignty and mercy. But I can't get away from that idea of humility. And I think this is one of the things that accounts for why this doctrine is so maligned and so hated and so rejected even by those who are called Christians. It's in the Bible. It's not as if it's been made up. It's in the Bible. So why do people like it? And I think it comes back, at least in part, to this simple uh, single point. Humility. This doctrine is humbling because it takes place outside of time. It's humbling because it takes place out of time. It's like the apostle said, that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. It's humbling because predestination takes everything out of our hands. It tells us that the most important choices made about me happened in eternity, and I had nothing to do with that. That's humbling. That doesn't mean to diminish that choices we make are irrelevant because God's appointed means and ends. But it is very humbling to think that the most ultimate decisions made about me were not made by me. They were made by God. And it puts him as king and not me. It dethrones self. It dethrones autonomy. And we think of ourselves as in charge. I think this is why it is so maligned and so hated. Because it leaves all of it in the hands of God. And throws us entirely upon the sovereignty of God. In his mercy. But if you believe that. As the word of God teaches. How couldn't it lead. To not only the deepest sense of humility. But the greatest. And most intense form of gratitude and love. Because God chose you for something. You didn't deserve. God determined to set his affections upon you. I love how it said by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 at the very end of the verse, a new sentence should actually be begun there. It says in love, he predestined us. You know, we like to say as Reformed people, we don't know why God did it. That's not entirely true. Because the Bible tells me why God did it. In love. It's inconceivable in a sense for us, I suppose, but it tells me exactly why God did it in love. He predestined us. There's a statement, and I forget precisely which passage it is in, um, in Isaiah. It's in the, the servant psalm somewhere. It, it says that, um, that uh, our names are written on his hand. To speak of the ever-presence of um, our memory and the divine awareness. But that's particularly applied to Jesus Christ. As he went to that cross seeing your name. And that's why the preacher said, Who for the joy set before him despised the shame. 
His joy was you. Saving you. The minute we feel like we need to be angry about this doctrine or shake our fist about it or malign it, we need to understand what's in store. If God doesn't determine to save us, there's no hope. If God has determined to save us, all there is is earthly blessing and mercy and salvation for us. And it leaves all of it in the hands of God. And what it does is it leaves us humble and adoring and grateful. I've never met a humble, adoring, grateful person who claims to believe, who spends time thanking themselves for their own faith. The way you have this deepest and most humble adoration for mercies is that you know you didn't deserve it at all. And God and his sovereignty and his love set his affections upon you. Now as you have all of that frame of mind and reference, now come into the second point of our message this morning, which is the implications of this doctrine. And as I noted, our text is framed for application. Our text is framed for application. Why? Because I would have you look at the first word in verse 9, 4. And I would have you look at the first word in verse 11 right after our text, therefore. Both of our applications come directly from the structure of our text. Okay? So you know this morning exactly where we're getting the implications of this doctrine, at least as Paul sets them forth in this text. There's others we can draw, but let's just take these for this morning. And the very first one is the Christian life. I told you four grounds as motive what he's just commanded in verse 8. And what he's commanded in verse 8 is very easy for us to see. Since we are of the day, let us be sober. You see, this is the call of the believer to moral restraint, to the disciplining of our appetites, to the denying of sin, to the seeking to walk in uprightness. That's the call. That is the call of the Christian life. It's, it's, it's written out here in shorthand, but that's simply the call. It's, it's compact, but this is the whole of the Christian life, which is characterized as living according to faith, hope, and love. But that's the duty. But uh, really, since we've expounded this already, I don't go back and expound it. I'm going to simply make the connection the Apostle Paul makes. The call to live this life as a believer, the Apostle Paul says, is grounded in what? This divine decree. For God has not destined us for wrath. Remember, I told you the Armenian objection, the common objection to this doctrine is if you tell people they have fire insurance and their salvation is eternally secure in Jesus Christ, they will live like hell. And there are no roadblocks on that highway and that's where they will end up. I ask you this morning, be your own judge. Is that what the Apostle Paul says? Does he say, 
hey Thessalonians, I want to let you in on something. That's the doctrine of salvation. But don't say too much about this doctrine because if you do, a lot of people will take it the long way and they won't live like Christians. No, he makes it his argument for the Christian life. He says, I'm calling you to live and to be sober and to live in faith, hope, and love and deny yourself and to take up your cross because something marvelous has happened to you that God has destined you to salvation and not to wrath. You see, the clear implication of the doctrine of double predestination is that I ought to be the most diligent and energetic Christian because God did not destine me to wrath. But he did something else for me which I didn't deserve. He appointed me to enjoy saving mercy in the blood and the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Calvin says this, and I think it's, very bold and very strong. He says, Paul encourages believers to fight strenuously, setting before us the certainty of our victory. See that? Mm -hmm. He encouraged us to fight strenuously by setting forth the certainty of our victory. And he says, those who don't have that fight timidly and they fail to pursue their moral duty. It's in the knowledge of the security of your salvation, not in yourself, but in the divine appointment to have salvation in Jesus Christ that you will fight. You will continue to pursue the Christian life. And when you get knocked down and when you fall down and when you backslide and when you go wayward, you will fight. Because you know of the mercy of God to you and the certainty of the hope of your salvation in the Savior. Far from being an opiate of the devil that leads into impiety. The Apostle Paul, now you, you can say, I don't agree with Paul. I don't like the inspired words of Scripture and I disagree with God. But that's where you're at. You can either reject what God has said or you can just be humble and bow down right in front of it. Plant your face on the ground and say, God, you are glorious and almighty, and I'm not. What's the other thing that we're called to? Therefore, two things in view of this. I think this is a marvelous implication. He's just expounded the doctrine of double predestination. He says, therefore, encourage and build one another up. See that? The implication of this massive doctrine is that you are to do something. You as a believer, the very person who is included under the pronoun us is the person who's being exhorted here to do something. And that exhortation is to encourage and build one another up. It is to encourage one another. It is to encourage fellow believers in Christ. And I would assume, given the connection of ideas, that the encouragement I'm to give other people is to come from the Word of God and not my own head, right? We fail in the duty of Christian encouragement if we come alongside somebody and say, well, it's going to be okay. You're such a nice person. You do so many good things. You really ought to be encouraged about yourself, you know? You've got a wonderful family. 
The Bible doesn't uh, lead us to speak of encouraging one another that way. The Bible would lead us to speak words of encouragement to one another that are grounded in the word of God. So the encouragement that we bring to others is not our encouragement, but divine encouragement and biblical encouragement. How about this? You're not appointed to wrath. You are appointed to salvation. You have been appointed to receive saving mercy through Jesus Christ who died for you. You have been appointed to live together with Christ. You see, biblical encouragement has this essence about it that it lifts us up out of the minutia of the everyday experience and all that's pushing and, and crowding us out. Just lift up your eyes to the horizons. Like that great Psalm 121, where does my help come from? Well, my help comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth, the one who never slumbers or sleeps, who watches my going out and my coming in from this time and forevermore. I've been on the hospital side of the bed when people die. I've been on the hospital side of bed when I've sent people in for all kinds of surgeries. I've never yet met a person who said, tell me something good about myself real quick. Encourage me about something good about me. I've had people tell me good, the, the good that they think they are. They've never asked me once to have me encourage them with my own words about them. Because I would say people recognize that's a time for something bigger than mere words. People of God, this is what you're called to. Encourage one another. The apostle envisions for the help and strength of the saints that we come alongside of each other because sin has a way of breaking us down. Providence has a way of breaking us down. Our bodies failing has a way of breaking us down. Discouragements have a way of breaking us down. Anxiety has a way of weighing us down. Financial difficulties have a way of weighing us. Do I have to multiply? There are so many ways in life that the believer can get simply weighed down and heavy. You know what God says? Are you a believer here this morning? Are you in the group of the us destined to eternal life with the Lord Jesus Christ? He said, you come alongside of that broken person and you lift them up with biblical words. People of God, that means you're going to have to spend a little time with the word and a little bit of time in prayer. But you're called to it. The other thing you're called to do here is build up. It's a construction term. It means to build the foundation and the walls and the ceiling in such a way that the whole building holds together and is solid. And of course, it's a metaphor here. It is designed for us to speak other, to others in a way that makes them firm in the Christian life. You see, it's uh, easy for our emotions 
and thoughts to swing like a pendulum when trouble hits. To become shell-shocked. And yet, uh, the Word of God says there's a remedy for that. Paul enlarges on this command and exhortation of Ephesians 4.29. He says it's good uh, where to speak a word that is good for edification according to the need of the moment so it will give grace to those who hear. A word of edification and then in the moment so that we give grace. That's what we're called to do. This is very hard to learn how to do. I'll, I'll give you that. It's not easy. It's something we have to work at a bit. As we apply the word to our own life, we'll gain some insight into how we do this. But I want you to know this morning, people of God, this is your calling. And I know that's true because the Bible says you do it. And then at the end, it says just as you are doing. They're already doing it. That's brought in by way of reinforcement that this is their calling. Well, you're already doing it. Just keep it up. How about you? Are you doing that? Are you taking your Christian calling seriously? If you're enjoying divine mercy, and I pray that you are, break some off for a fellow brother or sister. There's a lot of people who need it. I'll tell you what, there's people who need it that you look at and think they would never need it at all. (laughs) There's the obvious targets, and then there's those people you don't think about. They don't need it. They're doing fine. You don't know anything about people. You don't know nothing. There are so many people who would love to hear a word that's encouraging. There are so many people who would love to hear a good word. There are so many people who would love to hear a word that fortifies them and makes them strong. God's word tells you this morning that's your call. That's what you're to do. If you find yourself in that great us, God is not destined us for wrath, but for salvation. Here's your call. Put it into practice in your life. What do we do with our doctrine? A lot of people say, I don't want to get involved in that doctrine stuff. Makes people arrogant. Makes people puffed up. Leads to all kinds of speculation. It leads to division. Well, I can do all that, yeah, because of sin. But that's not necessary to it. What you do with your doctrine is you put it into practice in your life. And that's not because I said so. It's because the Word of God said so. For and therefore. You see, the apostle doesn't speak a bunch of high-minded stuff here. He speaks of the most ultimate high-minded things, and then he brings it right down. He doesn't have you staring and gazing at the heavens. He puts your head right down here towards the feet on your ground, and he says, now... You live the Christian life. You live like a Christian of faith, hope, and love. And you come alongside your fellow believer. And you speak words of encouragement and build them up. That's what Christ called you to. If you've been destined unto salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ and his cross. Father, we thank you for your word with all of its exposition of the deep mysteries of God that um, are hard to understand, which are beyond our thoughts sometimes, but uh, our words also that are full of the deepest encouragement, which is 
the simple truth that you set your love on us from eternity, it's not simple because of, um, of our ability to comprehend all the vast dimensions of it, but it's simple enough that we can understand it, it means forever you've loved us. And that's a marvelous thought. Because of that eternal love, um, Lord, you've called us to be your servants. Clothed in the, the blood and righteousness of Jesus, would you, Father, strengthen us uh, to be uh, grateful and dutiful servants that you may receive the glory. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.